All right, so our lesson tonight is going to come from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 1. We're jumping back into the confession. For those of you that are using the, the hardcover Bibles that we just got in, that's going to be page 1,313. So start in the back and work forward. Also, you get to enjoy the that thrill of working through a, a new Bible where all the pages are still kind of stuck together and you have the awkward creasing sound of them breaking apart. Don't worry, we're going to... We're going to go through this together. It'll be fun. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 1. Uh, and I'll go ahead and just read this for us. It's of Christ the Mediator. And it says this. Uh, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And so that's the paragraph that we'll be looking at uh, both tonight, and then when I'm back again in two weeks, we'll finish it, because there's a um, there's a lot of theology that's packed into that very long sentence. Now, we call it a paragraph because that's just what people tend to call it. But if you notice, there's, a, there's only one period in there. Um, it's one very long, densely packed sentence. So we're going to break that apart. Uh, I notice there are a lot of visitors tonight or people that I don't recognize. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Uh, just to clear up, we're not studying the Westminster Confession of Faith instead of the Bible. We study the Westminster Confession of Faith as a means of studying the whole of what the Bible teaches on given subjects, given topics. We believe that the Westminster Divines have accurately summarized what the whole of the Bible teaches on these things. Uh, and so before we jump back into the confession, we've been off the confession for the summer, let's just do a little bit of a recap of, of where we've been so far. And, and the reason that I want to do this at the start is so that you all will understand no doctrine of Scripture exists in a vacuum. No doctrine of scripture exists in isolation, but it, it forms a cohesive whole. Everything builds as we go through. Um, we don't want to be uh, cafeteria Christians. Does anyone know what that, it's an old phrase, does anyone know what that means, what a cafeteria Christian might be? Jack? Exactly. I'll take some of this, but I'll leave that, and I'll take some of this over here, and I'll leave that. A lot of people do that, and they don't see uh, the need for the doctrines to relate, for them to be connected. Uh, but they, they do need to be. We have a system of doctrine that we're given in Scripture, and we under, understand the whole of that system. Um, that's why it's called systematic theology. Our doctrines are designed to work together. Uh, treating them in isolation uh, doesn't work. It would be kind of like if I took uh, my Toyota Corolla to the shop and I asked them to fix it using BMW parts. Uh, it's not going to work because those parts don't go with that engine. In the same way, we want our doctrine to fit together. So chapter 1 of the Confession deals with the doctrine of Scripture. Why would the, why would the Westminster Divines start with the doctrine of Scripture? Who can tell me? Why would they start there? Francis. Because it's what God has given us to know him. Right. That's what they're trying to summarize, is what the Bible teaches on all these given things. So if we don't understand what the Bible is, 
we don't have a firm foundation to build everything else on. Uh, from there, chapters 2 and 3 deal with God and his decree. That's the And, and then 4 and 5 deals with the outworking of his decree and creation and providence. And then finally, in chapter 6, we come to mankind. So we deal with God and who he is and what he's doing. And then we come to ourselves in chapter 6. And we understand who we are in relation to God. We're, we're creatures made in the image of God. And yet we are creatures who have fallen because of sin. And then chapter 7 speaks of God's covenant with man, which is the means by which creatures like us are brought into fellowship with God. Uh, the chapter 7, paragraph 1 says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition or realization or, or understanding of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on the part of God. It's really old language, but the gist of what it's saying there is, although human beings, because we're God's creatures, we owe him obedience, we owe him uh, faithfulness, we owe him all these things because he made us, yet we could not have a relationship with him without him coming down to our level, as it were, without him coming down to relate to us, and he has done so by way of covenant. And then in chapter 8, we come to uh, the Lord Jesus, of, the, of, the, of Christ the Mediator. And we'll actually be in chapter 8. Uh, I think the current schedule has us going through to the beginning of November, um, just focused on this one chapter, because it's that foundational, because it's that important. Uh, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17, 3. So if our doctrine of Christ isn't right, in a sense it doesn't really matter what else we may get technically right because it's all wrong. If it's not built on the foundation of who Jesus is. And so as, a, as kind of a roadmap for where we're going tonight, we're going to look at this paragraph uh, under, under two headings. Uh, the need of a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? And then what are the offices of our mediator? So first, why do we need one? And secondly, what does he do? So 8.1 says that we have a mediator. And it says, what, what does a mediator do? When I use that term, what is a mediator? It's kind of like the middle person. The middle person between what? Between us and God. Between us and God. All right, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. A mediator is someone who comes in between two parties. Why would, why would two parties particularly us and God, why would we need a mediator? Are things good between us and God or, or not so good? Well, with him it is, but without him it would not be. Right. Apart from Christ, it is not good. The relationship is broken. The covenant has been broken that God made with man. Mankind has always needed a covenant to have relationship with God. But we need a mediator in addition to a covenant because the first covenant was broken. We need a mediator because of the fall of man. Uh, because apart from a mediator, we stand in, in, in great danger before God. That's a very serious thing. Would somebody please read Psalm 7, 11. Psalm 7, verse 11. Just to kind of give us a flavor for why is it uh, a dangerous thing to stand before God without a mediator.
Love that <coughs> sprinkle. All right, who's got it? Psalm 7, 11. Mr. Schwanevelt? God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. All right, um, that's, that's the ESV's rendering. Miss Miss uh, Berenger, what have you got? God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry with the wicked every day. What does a righteous judge do with a wicked sinner? What does a good judge do with someone who's guilty? He punishes them. He punishes them according to what standard? The law. The law, right? A righteous judge, a good judge, says you committed this crime, and the law says this is the penalty for that crime. What does the law say the wages of sin is? Death. And that's Romans 6.23. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, so why is there a need for a mediator? Well, we need a mediator because apart from that, we stand guilty before God who is a just and holy judge. And we're in a great deal of trouble because we sin every day. And God is justly and rightly angry with the sins of his creatures. Now that's one answer to the question why we need a mediator. That's why we need a mediator. But that does not answer the question as to why there is a mediator. What's the difference I'm making there? That's the, the answer to the question, we need a mediator because apart from one, will we will go to hell, is true. But that's not the only answer because th that would be limiting our theology to only our own perspective. Does that make sense? That's our side of the equation for why we need one. But we want to answer it fully. Why does God desire there to be a mediator? Why is there a mediator? Well, there's one because God desires there to be one. There's one, uh, it's for the same reason... Um, well, Jack, why? Tell us. I saw your hand. Because he loves us. Where do you get that from? Um, Amen. <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's simple, childlike theology, but it's absolutely true. We need a mediator because God, as a just, holy judge, is required to punish the sins of his people, and yet... Even so, he does not desire to send his people to eternal conscious torment. He does not desire that his precious people, his elect, should go to hell. And so, because of his love for us, he has established a mediator. That's what the confession says. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man. So just a couple of passages from Scripture that will help uh, hammer this home. Would somebody please read for us Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Uh, let's, let's get Mr. Troutner on that. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Uh, and then Mr. Weaver, if you could do uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. So 1, 3 to 5 and 2, 1 to 5. Yeah, chapter one, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. 
You're, be, go ahead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chooses us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All right, and what did he predestine us? In love. He, he predestined you. He chose you. Not because of what Jesus did for you, but he sent Jesus to do that for you because he loved you. That's the logic of the passage. Uh, Mr. Mr. Weaver, you've got chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me pause you there, and I'll let you keep going with verses uh, 4 and 5 in just a minute. So that's the condition of all mankind by nature, walking contrary to the ways of God, walking in rebellion against God, following the prince of the power of the air, following the enemies of God. Now what happens in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Thank you. That's great. So this is what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, doing nothing to earn God's favor, doing nothing to earn his grace, doing nothing to earn anything other than his wrath and curse. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. Why did he do that? Because of the great love with which he loved us. God sent Jesus as our mediator because he loved us. And then just one more, uh, probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. Mr. McGochran, would you please read for us John 3.16. Judges like Judges like you can recite it if you... <laughs> Exactly right. Now, what's the first part of that? Why did he do it? For, because, God so, therefore, on the basis of that, he sent his son. That whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people think, and I'm hammering this, I know I'm being kind of repetitive and redundant, because a lot of people get it exactly backwards. A lot of people think God loves me because of what Jesus did for me. That's not right. The Bible says God loves me, therefore he sent Jesus to save me. That's a completely different system of doctrine. God loves me, and therefore he sends Jesus to save my soul. That's the biblical pattern. So then the takeaway from this section is that there needs to be a mediator because we have offended God, and yet God still loves us and wants to be reconciled. That's the takeaway. We need a mediator for those two reasons. One, because we have offended God, and yet God still wants to, to, to reconcile us. And so that cannot happen apart from a mediator. And so at the end of the day, he, he appointed Jesus to be our mediator, and he is the only mediator between God and man. That's 1 Timothy 2 uh, and verse 5. He is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, who's really good at grammar in here? 
I know all of you, I'm sure, but like, all right, that, that word the, is that a definite article or an indefinite article? It's a definite article. Miss Berenger, can you, can you tell us what that means? What's the difference between a definite article and an indefinite article? Like a category, yeah. So if Jesus had said, I am a way, that would imply that there are other ones. But he did not say that. He said, I am the way. He is the only mediator between God and man. Uh, and there's a number of other passages we could go to for that. Uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved than that of the Lord Jesus. There is no other mediator between God and man. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we all stand condemned in our sins. So that's why we need a mediator. Now let's talk about, with the time that we have left, the offices of the mediator. Our confession lists three offices. Uh, who can tell me what they are? Um, they're right there. I see you, Jack, but I want somebody that hasn't spoken yet. Mr. Van Dijewoord. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, you'll notice that there are several footnotes for each one of those in your confession. And they are all worth looking up later. But for the sake of time, uh, we're going to look at one passage that's going to highlight all three of these offices in one. Mr. Myers, can I get you to please read for us Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Page 1121. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. 1 through 3. Oh. Yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that to you, Harris. First, mostly because there is no verse after 15 um, or 14. Many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these late, last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you very much, Mr. Myers. So I'm going to show you, we've got all three offices in play in that passage. He's our prophet, priest, and king, and they're all being referenced there. The prophet is probably the plainest one to see. Uh, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now he has spoken in his son. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the true. He is the great prophet. He is the, he is the prophet of prophets. He's the one that they were all leading up to. And then in verse 3, uh, Mr. Myers read for us that, that he... Uh, this is towards the end of verse 3, he made purification for our sins. What office is that? Who makes purification for sins? The priest, right? So we've got prophet, we've got priest, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his kingly office. That's the, that's the divine authority, the, the royal throne. He sits down. So we have Jesus there as our prophet, priest, and king. And we rehearse these offices a lot in our class. We'll talk about them a lot as we work through John's gospel. Uh, but it's a good time now to just kind of go over them in general. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what he does in these offices as our mediator and why each one of them is, is essential and why they're ultimately good news. So we'll spend the rest of our time looking through how the Shorter Catechism defines uh, these offices. That's Shorter Catechism 24 to 26. This is uh, towards the back of your, uh, if, you're, if you're using the, the hardback Bible, for, page 1400. All right, so we're going to start with uh, Jesus as our prophet. Uh, Mr. Spell, can I get you to read that question and answer for us? Question 24. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. All right. Why is it necessary for our mediator to be a prophet? Well, we need a mediator, again, as we've said, because we have violated the word of God. We have violated the will of God. And that affects everything, including our own thinking. This is called the noetic effects of sin, which has nothing to do with Noah. Uh, the noetic effects of sin has to do with the intellect, has to do with the, the ability to reason. So not only are our desires fallen, not only are our actions sinful, but the way that we think, apart from being redeemed by Christ, is corrupted by sin. And so we need a prophet to speak the truth into our lives. Apart from him, we could not know the truth. We could only know what we like versus what we don't like. But God, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, has spoken clearly in his word, revealing to us the will of God that we have broken. And it's often the case that part of being reconciled to someone, as we need to be reconciled to God, is learning the truth about yourself. Has anyone here ever had, maybe it's just me, but has anyone ever here had a, a, a fight or a disagreement with a friend? You don't have to like point to the friend if they're in the room or anything. But what about a sibling, maybe? Anyone ever had? Okay. I would be willing to bet, I'd be willing to wager that those disagreements, those fights, were not 100% the other person's fault. <laughs> and part, part of the reconciliation process was somebody not directly involved in the fight loving you enough to say, quit being a knucklehead and say you're sorry. That's part of the solution. Now, when it comes to the Lord Jesus, he is that prophet that loves you enough to tell you, you have broken covenant with God. You have broken faith with God. You have done this wrong, and you need to come to your senses. He tells us that as he reveals God's will as our mediator, as our prophet. That's not all he does as our mediator. There's also number 25. Let's see. Um, Ellie Mobley, would you please read? Do you have your confession with you? Shorter Catechism 25. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executed the, the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Thank you very much. So this office of a priest is probably the one we think about the most often in terms of Christ as our mediator because it's by his sacrifice, by his death on the cross, that we are reconciled to God. 
And it's also by his uh, continual intercessory prayers on our behalf that we are, that we are uh, maintained in that relationship with God. That's an amazing thing to think about is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for you right now, praying that you would be upheld even now. It's good news for a great number of reasons, but, but one of them is in his once for all offering up of himself as a sacrifice, that means all of the work that was necessary for you to be reconciled to God has already been done. There is nothing that you need to do to earn that. I'll just give you guys a, a, a brief illustration. Um, a couple of years ago, my family and I were, were visiting, uh, visiting friends and family in Virginia. And uh, on the drive home, one of the drivers in my family, who shall remain nameless, um, may have been going a, a mile or ten over the speed limit. So slow. And, and we, <laughs> and, and we, uh, we attracted uh, some unwanted attention from a man of the law. And uh, when pulled over, uh, it was discovered by this law officer that uh, one of us had an expired Virginia driver's license. Now, that's a big deal. Now, the, the, the truth is that legally you can't have two driver's licenses. Driver's license is proof of residence. So when we got South Carolina licenses, our Virginia licenses should have been voided. Somebody didn't check a box. So technically we had a, a, an expired license that we shouldn't have. And y'all know um, there are some there are some traffic crimes that you can commit that it doesn't matter how far away you live you have to drive back to go to court, and driving on an on a, an expired license is one of those crimes. So that was a, a twelve hour round trip that we had to go back to Virginia after we got home like six weeks later, right? And the whole time I know I know the law I know it's just a, a slip up with the DMV it's going to be an easy fix. But there's all this apprehension because you're going to court and, and you know, but you don't really know. Okay. And we got there and, and the judge looked at the paperwork that we provided showing that the license should have been voided years ago anyway. And he looked at the officer and then he looked at us and said, I'm sorry, and let us go. And that was a wonderful day. Now, the point of why I bring that up is there was anxiousness all the way leading up to that. But when it comes to standing before the judgment of God, not only has the work already been done by our high priest, it has also already been accepted. It would be as if when the officer's writing the ticket, he got a call and the judge was telling him, I already paid for that. I already took care of that. Your sin will lead you away from God, and that is tragic. But your sin, if you are a born-again believer, will never lead God away from you. All you have to do is repent and come back. It's already atoned for. It's already covered. Don't persist in that. Don't use that as license. But know that the, the, the judge has already accepted payment on your behalf because of your high priest who has mediated for you. We're going to close out now with Christ as king uh mr bombaro would you please read for us i guess i have to say hanuel we got two bombaros in here now uh hanuel would you please read for us number 26 christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies all right 
So that's his office as a king. What's the good news here? How is that a mediatory office? Well, it's in that first little bit. He subdues us to himself. So think about it this way. Christ, as, as our prophet, he reveals to you the problem, as it were. He declares to you the problem so that you can be reconciled to God. Christ, as the priest, atones for that problem. He pays for it. He covers it. And Christ, as our king, causes us to willfully, gladly accept that payment, to hear that good word, and to be reconciled. He subdues us to himself. And, and, and further than that, he also rules and defends us, protecting us from all those things that, that would lead us away, that would seek to destroy our faith. What does he tell Peter before his crucifixion? He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And that's why it won't happen. That's why you won't be led away because he rules and defends us against all of his and our enemies. He is the only mediator between God and man and he has done all that is necessary that we might be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for our mediator. The only mediator there is and the only mediator that we will ever need. We give thanks to you for the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would bless our time in the coming weeks as we study uh, his office as mediator and how he has um, reconciled us to you. I ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.